morning. Welcome to Advent at North Suburban Church. Don't know if you're joining us after a weekend of turkey or a weekend of football or a weekend of shopping or a combination of those, uh, but whatever the case may be, it's good to be together worshiping this morning and directing our attention to uh, our God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. If you're watching online today, we're glad you're able to join us in that way. We do want to invite you, though, if you're able, to attend one or more of our Advent services in person. As you've heard alluded to several times in the service, just want to make sure you caught it. If uh, It's an arrive-early type situation during Advent if you're up for it. You know, even with kids, each week we've got a little uh, informal, laid-back Christmas carol sing before the service at 10.10. So uh, Maggie led us in the first of those today. Um, We'll be doing that again each week of Advent from 10.10 to 10.20 before the 10.30 service. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Jesus and Superman both possess incredible powers, both swoop in from far off places to save humanity. But besides the fact that we Christians believe one of those stories to be fiction and the other to be fact, there's another important way in which Jesus isn't actually our Superman. A Bible scholar named Michael Kruger points this out. Superman only seems to be human but is in fact not human. He's an alien disguised as a human, and that's a key feature of the story, actually. He's able to save the world because he's not human. On the other hand, according to the scriptures, Jesus Christ doesn't just seem to be human. He is a human, and he's able to save the world not despite his humanity, but precisely because of his humanity. Uh, Not to nerd out, but just for a quick second, the early church captured it like this in the year 451 at a place called Chalcedon, when they said, Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. He's truly God and truly man. There's plenty that Christians disagree on, as you probably know, but that's a fundamental affirmation of all Christians of all varieties all over the world, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is truly God and truly human. And the reason that for us... That's not just trivia to get Jesus right. It's because the Christian faith actually rises or falls on the person of Jesus. That's a major distinctive of Christianity compared to many other major world religions. So I want to make sure everyone catches it. Christianity is not centered uh, on a set of instructions or a set of moral codes, but rather on a person, a person whose name is Jesus. And the claim of Christians is that he isn't just a moral teacher, but he's actually the epicenter of history and the savior of the world. So here at North Suburban Church, we're taking time this Advent to ask the question, why Jesus? In other words, what qualifies Jesus to be the savior of the world? With so many options out there, why is he the one that we should turn to? That big question, why Jesus requires the addressing of several smaller questions, and so over the next few weeks we will 
look at those uh, in turn. We will ask questions like, why a divine savior? Like, why couldn't a really great non-divine human have done the trick? Why a lowly savior? Isn't it odd that the most important figure in world history would come from nothing? Why a royal savior? Why are the gospels so insistent on talking about Jesus as though he's a king from David's line? <clears throat> but this morning we ask the question, why a human savior? Like, if we can do our work remotely, why couldn't God, right? If he's so great, why couldn't he have just stayed on his heavenly throne and saved us from up there? Why would a human savior, which the Roman world, in the Roman world, is seen as a weak and embarrassing feature of the Christian faith, why would a human savior need to be introduced into the equation? To add a little bit of intrigue to the question, we should note quickly before we jump in that the whole sending of a human savior doesn't seem to have been God's plan B. He didn't scramble to adjust to that plan. Actually, for hundreds and even a couple thousand years before Jesus, the writings that ended up composing the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, hinted that the savior would be a human. For example, right at the moment everything goes wrong in Genesis 3, Right after sin enters the world and the beauty and order are thrown into chaos and decay, God promises this to the serpent who had tempted Eve. God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's foreshadowing here that an offspring of Eve's, a human in other words, will one day make war with his enemy, the serpent. Satan, the devil. That prophecy about Eve's offspring then gets picked up over and over again throughout the Hebrew Bible. So God speaks to a guy named Abram. He says, hey, Abram, that offspring from Genesis 3 is going to come through your line. Then about a thousand years later to a descendant of Abraham named David. Hey, David, that offspring that was uh, talked about back in Genesis 3 that I told Abram about as well, he's going to come specifically from your family line. All along, a human savior seems to be in view. But why? So I want to spend our short time together today just addressing that question with the several few answers that come in through the Bible and then talk about implications. Specifically, I want to take us through four brief answers to that question and then three implications of those answers. That seems like a lot. Don't worry. We're going to keep it all to 25 minutes during Advent here. So answer number one, why human savior? We're going to go quickly. Uh, so these will be up on the screen is to be a perfect example for us. He's a human savior, so he could be a perfect example for us. Many of you know this about me, but uh, I'm not handy at all. So our passenger door handle came off our car recently. I won't get into how that happened, but it happened, and here I am, helplessly holding the broken parts in my hand. So I take it to the repair shop, and my guy, Mr. Lee, whom I love, says, no, 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 you don't bring this to me. You do this yourself. This is a super glue situation. <laughs> and he basically shames me into taking my car back home, still with no door handle. And uh, I don't know if it's pride or what, but I, I didn't have it in me to double down and say, no, you don't understand, Mr. Lee. Just let me pay you to do this, please, even if it's just super glue. So I, I got some super glue, and I'm so stressed out by this whole thing. I, I pull up YouTube, though. Right? So thankful for YouTube, right? Anybody else go to YouTube in these situations? Yes, right? Because if all I had was a list of instructions, there's zero chance I would have ever been able to fix that handle, right? But on YouTube, I can watch somebody do it. 
And I can pause and rewind and imitate that real live human who's doing it on video as an example for me to see. So now we have a handle again, and it hasn't yet come off, although yesterday it started to get a little finicky. Anyways, <laughs> though this isn't the most important aspect of why the Savior had to be a human, it's no small thing that in the person of Jesus, we have a concrete picture like a YouTube video, of what living as a human is supposed to look like. Jesus' life of perfect obedience was the life that Adam, the first human, was supposed to live. It's the life that you and I were supposed to live, and he lived it. There's been no other example in human history of somebody we could look to and say with full confidence, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. But in Jesus, we have exactly that. Here's how 1 Peter 2 says it. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So that's the first answer, to be a perfect example for us. But, but, if God sent a human savior so that we'd have an example to follow, there's a problem, namely, that none of us can follow that example, at least not perfectly. So you and I, we're still stuck and in need of saving from our sin. In terms of significance, then, this first answer is the least important of the four answers that I'm about to give you. Here's the second one. To be a better representative for us. He's a human savior so that he could be a better representative for us. Maybe at some point, if you ever played a team sport, you experienced an end-of-practice challenge, something like this. Okay, if Susie makes this free throw, uh, then practice is over. But if she misses, we're all doing sprints. Right? Anybody remember something, some version of that, whether, whatever sport you're playing? Yeah. One player as a representative for the whole team. The whole team's destiny riding on one delegate's shoulders. Here's the thing, though. According to the Bible, that's something like how it works on a cosmic scale for the human race. Take a look with me at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. That's going to be easier to see online probably than it will be here but you can open to it because we'll camp out there for a minute romans chapter five so much here but i want to trace one thread through this text uh the apostle paul frames the human situation here in this passage as though one's destiny depends on the destiny of his or her representative so take a look with me therefore just as sin came into the world through one man that's adam and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he goes on a little bit, and then he goes in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, again, Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in, the life, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And here's his summary in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Did you see that there? The deep logic that undergirds Paul's reasoning here is a representative system. In other words, if Adam is your team representative, then Adam's outcome becomes your outcome. However, if you join a new team with Jesus as your new representative, then Jesus' outcome becomes your outcome. That's great news, right? But the default, though, is for all of us to be born onto Team Adam. That's a tough deal, because that means that by default, we're with Adam under the reign of sin, under the reign of Satan, under the reign of death. That's our default situation, yours and mine. But the good news is that we can request a trade and be transferred to Team Jesus. And because Jesus conquered sin and Satan and death, all the rulers of Team Adam's world domain, those who are part of the new humanity with Jesus as our representative share in Jesus' destiny of resurrection life. For our purposes this morning, here's how all this fits. None of this works if Jesus isn't a human. The representative is qualified to represent the team because he's chosen from among the team members. So part of why the Savior had to be human was to become a better representative for us than Adam was. Where Adam missed the free throw by rebelling against God, Jesus makes the free throw by living a sinless life. And his success then becomes counted as our success if we are members of his team. That's the second answer, that he might be a better representative for us. The third one is related, not exactly the same though. He's a human savior so he could be a satisfactory substitute for us. A satisfactory substitute we just emphasized Jesus' perfect life a moment ago in point two, which matters tremendously for us because since he's our representative, it's his perfection that's credited to our accounts. But <clears throat> if Jesus had lived a perfect life and then been whisked up to heaven, the Bible teaches that that in itself, just a perfect life and then it ending, wouldn't have been enough to save us from the wrath of God. And that may seem morbid, but according to the Bible, the wrath of God is actually what we need to be saved from. Some of you might hear that and think, well, how cruel is that of God to be wrathful? But consider the alternative. What do you think of the judge, the human judge, who hears the case of the serial rapist, for example, only to wink at him and say, ah, I'll let it slide this time. Thank the Lord, that's not who he is, right? In his own words, in Exodus 34, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And it is good news that he is that sort of a God, that sort of a judge who does exercise justice. And I should say, it's good news broadly speaking, until we realize it's actually bad news for us, in a sense, right? Bad news because each of us is guilty. And therefore, we ourselves are deserving, found by God to be among those deserving of punishment. What's our crime? It's treason, to put it one way. We're guilty because of the thousand betrayals when we looked at the God who tenderly loved us like we were his little sheep in his arms, yet we turned around and then evicted him from his throne in order to seat ourselves there as our private little kings and queens. 
And the punishment that God says is most fitting for our crime is the sentence of death. Death of body and death of soul. In the wildest of all plot twists, though, the good news of the Bible can be boiled down to this. That a merciful God finds a way to preserve his justice while making a way for us to be saved. And here's how he does it. Ready? God, the just judge, makes a provision. He says this, if another human will take the punishment, and it has to be another human because the punishment is death of body and soul, and a mere spirit doesn't have a body that can die. So if another human will take the punishment in our place as a substitute, then our rebellion can be forgiven and we can go free. A couple qualifiers, though, of course. One, this human can't have any sin of his own, or else his death would just be the just punishment for his own sin. He wouldn't be able to do anything for the rest of us. Second, this human's one life must be worth more than my life, more than your life, or else his punishment could just maybe serve as a one-for-one trade, satisfying God's wrath toward maybe one of us, but not toward all of us. You see how Jesus, as, as truly God, truly man, and morally perfect meets the criteria. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 means in verses 14 to 18 when it says it like this. Notice, notice the words had to here, implying that it was somehow essential for it to be this way. It says this in Hebrews 2, there, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus didn't become an angel, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That term propitiation there, it refers to the the satisfying or the turning away of God's wrath. Because God poured his wrath out on his son, on the cross in other words, there's no more of that wrath left to be expended on us. Our sin was already paid for. The punishment has been served. The debt has been canceled, all because the Son of God partook of flesh and blood, subjecting himself to death in our place. That's reason three, answer three from the Bible, that he was a human savior in order to be a satisfactory substitute for us. And the final answer, number four, is to be a sympathetic priest for us. Be a sympathetic priest for us. A priest is a mediator, a go-between between God and humanity. Same text. Hebrews 2, I want to focus here on verse 17 though. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's a becoming here. Our Lord Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God pleading on our behalf. Did you know that? But the implication here is that if Jesus hadn't become human, he would be unqualified, if we could be so bold to say so, unqualified to be the merciful and faithful high priest that he is. That's why he had to become that. Verse 18 expands on that when it says, 
For because he himself has suffered when being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, when you and I plead with God, our prayers aren't just going up to someone who stands aloof to our plight. Rather, those prayers are mediated through one who knows our struggle inside and out. That somehow seems to enhance his mercy toward us. He might become merciful. Somehow qualifies him to help in his priestly mediatorial role as our go-between with God. I wonder if it's a little something like um, when you're growing up, did you ever confess something to your parents or get caught doing something wrong and then your parents totally disarmed you by sitting you down and sharing with you that they had experienced something just like you had experienced when they were growing up. That sort of a conversation has a way of setting you at ease, doesn't it? You can breathe a little. Like, I, I blew it, but mom and dad, they actually get it. And they're not jumping to bring down the hammer on me. They're actually sympathetic to my condition. Now, you say, well, that's not exactly how it is with Jesus because he never gave in to sin. So how can Jesus really ever know my struggle and how hard it is if he never gave in to sin like I do? And it's true, Jesus never did sin. But stop to think about that for a minute. Who experiences the full weight of temptation? A, the person who resists, 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 then gives in. Or B, the person who resists, 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 resists indefinitely without giving in. You ever think about that? Of course, the answer is it's the latter that experiences the full weight of temptation. The person who gives in to temptation, person A, can never actually know the full weight of it because they short-circuited the temptation that they would have experienced if they would have continued resisting. Right? They gave in. They're not being tempted anymore. As such, these aren't just nice words here about Jesus suffering when tempted or to use the phrasing of Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in every way like we are. The high priest in whose name you and I pray, really knows our temptation from the inside. So, those are four main biblical answers to the question, why a human savior? To be a perfect example for us, to be a better representative for us, to be a satisfactory substitute for us, and to be a sympathetic priest for us. Now, much more briefly, just want to wrap it up with three implications of those four answers. So, number one. That Jesus is the standard of what it means to be human. He's the standard. We often ask, could Jesus really have been as human as we are? But if this is true about Jesus' humanity, all that we saw in Scripture today, then the question we should be asking is, are we really as human as Jesus? Surely we don't think we're the standard of humanity that Jesus would strive to meet, right? No, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the truest human of all. The only human who fully embodied the human project. The singular human who fully carried out the human assignment. And as such, we are at our most fully human when we are most like him. Implication two. Our eternal destiny rests on who our representative is. Our eternal destiny rests on who our representative is. This is the simple but all-important question. 
Who is your representative this morning? You and I, again, were born with Adam as our default representative, and his sin therefore plunged us into the realm ruled by Satan's sin and death. Question, have you yet escaped that realm? Have you grabbed hold of Jesus as he reached down to pull you out and to transfer you into the new humanity that's captained by him? If you're unsure of your eternal destiny this Christmas season, the answer isn't to make a whole bunch of New Year's resolutions to be a better person in 2022. That's not it. After all, even the most morally upright member of Team Adam is still on Team Adam and therefore will share in the destiny faced by that whole team. Now the answer is to cry out to Jesus, the God-man, asking him to rescue you from Team Adam and to include you in the new humanity purchased by his blood. You could do that even today if you haven't before. Any of us would love to help you make that step. Final implication. We can come before Jesus with confidence. We can come before him with confidence. Let's not hesitate to bring our struggles and confessions and failures to the throne room of God because as we step into that throne room, we will meet there a fellow human. He's Jesus Christ, who, though truly God, is still to this day truly human. Did you ever reflect on that? And the human experience of our Savior has made him a merciful and faithful high priest, sympathizing with our weaknesses and eager to help us fragile humans who suffer and are tempted. So those are the three implications. Jesus is the standard of what it means to be human. Our eternal destiny rests on who our representative is. And we can come before Jesus with confidence. So friends, to wrap this up, the one born on Christmas isn't our Superman. He is something far better. He's not an alien come to pose as a human and rescue us from his place of strength. He's a human, every bit as human as you and me rescuing us from his place of weakness. He passed through a birth canal. He cried. He wet his diaper. He got exhausted. He experienced weakness. He was under such stress that he sweat drops of blood. He was rejected by those he came to save, laughed at, ridiculed, and mocked by his own people. That's our Savior, our very human Savior. And if he wasn't human like us, if he hadn't been human like us, we'd still be stuck in our sin and headed for death. Let's pray now before we continue worshiping. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in contrast with all the so-called gods of all the so-called religions of the world offering their own versions of salvation, you didn't just remain aloof from us, standing up from your perch and shouting down instructions for how we could try to climb the mountain to you. Instead, you climbed down the mountain to us because you knew we'd never be able to follow your instructions, not perfectly. Thank you for becoming a person, uh, becoming a human, the person of Jesus Christ, to be an example for us, to be our representative, our substitute. And now uh, we thank you that Jesus is our faithful, merciful high priest pleading for us and even taking these prayers that we offer up to you now and making them acceptable to you. 
as we continue to worship you and as we uh, seek to enter your throne room, help us to do so with boldness and confidence, knowing that we will find there a merciful and faithful high priest. In Jesus' name, amen.